Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. He is risen. So has he really risen? There was a um, charge against Jesus about 2,000 years ago that got him nailed to the cross. It was the charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy means to claim to be God and yet be lying about it. Today, I would like to present to you at least five pieces of evidence. I had about a dozen, but I was told based off time constraints that I had to narrow it down to the top five. So today, we will be taking a look at five different pieces of evidence for this Jesus that we worship, this Jesus that we sing about actually being God in flesh. And then I'm going to ask you at the end of the morning, would you make a verdict? Is he just a guru? Is he just a teacher? Was he just a martyr? Or maybe worse, was he a liar or a lunatic? Or was he the Lord of the universe just like he claimed to be? Make no bones about it. When Jesus showed up, he didn't give any middle ground or any in-between. He said, you're either going to reject me as a liar and as a lunatic, or you're going to accept me as the Lord of the universe. And the claims that he made was that he is the creator of the universe. He is the one who was there and spoke all things into existence, then entered into his creation. Then he died for his creation. Then he rose again. However, those are all really big claims. Did Jesus really live up to those claims. And that's what I'd like to take a look at this morning. We'll take a look at what I think are five of the biggest pieces of evidence for Jesus rising from the dead. And I want to say this, there are many even today that say the resurrection of Jesus was just a hoax. It was just a scam. That's what they said back then. They're saying it 2,000 years later. What I'd like to do today is show you five things that I would not have done if I was staging the resurrection. If the whole thing was a hoax and a scam, Five things that I would not have done. We're going to jump right in. Because again, I'm going to ask you to weigh the evidence. You may be sitting in this room and you're not convinced. I'm not convinced about this Jesus stuff that you talk about. I'm not convinced about this Bible that you say you believe is the word of God. I'm not even convinced that God exists. I'm going to start with just a mini what we would call an apologetic. It's not apologizing, it's, cre- it's creating a defense for what we believe before we even get to Jesus claiming to be God in flesh. Is there even a God that exists to come in flesh? Uh, We have been going through something together on Wednesday nights that we call an equip course. And we went through something called the unshakable truth. And in that, we began to establish right off the bat that there's definitely a God that exists, which again, we have to believe in order to believe that Jesus is actually God. How do we know that there's a God that actually exists? Let me start with this. You're here, and stuff exists. And you know what happens the moment that stuff begins to exist? You have to have an answer for who made it begin to exist. Anything, anytime something begins to begin, it has to have a beginner, which is again where our God comes in. He is outside of time, he is outside of space, he is outside of matter. He has to be. Somebody infinite has to exist in order to bring all finite things into existence. Sound good? You fired up? Okay, good. Now we're going to take a look at whether or not that God who brought all things into existence is actually Jesus who claimed to be 
not just a guru, not just a leader, not just a way to God, but God himself come to us. Can I actually believe that? Can I actually believe that this man who claimed to be God actually is God come to human beings? That's what we're going to seek to establish this morning. And again, the greatest piece of evidence of all is that if I'm God, I would want to see you, or if you said you were God, I would want to see you defeat the greatest enemy of all, and that is the enemy of death. Did Jesus actually defeat death? Well, let's find out. John chapter 19, beginning in verses 1 and 2. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be predominantly in John 19 and 20 this morning. Again, we're going to look at five pieces of evidence that prove that the resurrection was not a hoax. It was a true historical event which completely validates everything that Jesus said about himself. It starts in John 19, verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to ask you to skip with me to verses 16 through 18. Beginning in John 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Then in verse 16, Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Here's the first thing I would not have done if I was staging the resurrection. If the whole thing was a hoax, I would not have faked the resurrection. Or I would not have done this if I was faking the resurrection. I would not have been flogged and crucified. Now, I won't get into all of the gory details, but I at least want to set the stage for you a little bit as to what Jesus would have went through during his flogging and his crucifixion. Once accused of blasphemy and the crowd decided that he was guilty, the Romans decided they were going to punish him by flogging and crucifixion, which would have entailed Jesus having his hands tied up, stretched out on a pole. Then they would have taken what's called a cat of nine tails and began to whip him with it. It wouldn't have been little welts. In fact, it would have been this uh, literally would look like nine cattails coming off of a rod. And off of those tails would have been pieces of bone, pieces of glass, uh, uh, lead-weighted balls that would have stuck to his skin. And every time they would hit him with that glass, with those metal shards, with those little weighted lead balls, it would stick to his flesh and they would rip out chunks off of his body. The Romans actually tested on people how many times they could whip them before they would die. And the number of times it took to kill somebody was 40, so they whipped Jesus 39 times. On top of that, when they were finished, they put a crown of thorns onto his skull. They would then take a purple garment and they would throw it over him, symbolizing royalty, but it was really to mock him, and then the blood would coagulate, and then they would rip it off him, and they would do that over and over again just for fun. Again, if I was staging the resurrection and making the whole thing up, that is not something that I would have gone through. Now, some have asked the question, well, that's what happened to Jesus on a Friday, and we call it Good Friday. What in the world is good about anything that you just described to me? Well, the event itself may not have seemed good, but what it was that Jesus accomplished by going to that cross is awesome. Let me share with you. This comes from the hands of the Apostle Paul. It's in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul is 
a man who for the longest time hated anything to do with Jesus. He was persecuting those that followed Jesus. In fact, we believe that Paul was either directly or indirectly responsible for the deaths of thousands of people that followed Jesus. And then Jesus gets a hold of this man's life. And if you ever think, what could God ever do with me if you knew my past, you knew my background, he couldn't do anything with me, study the life of the Apostle Paul. Listen to these words from this man that at one time persecuted the church of Jesus. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, he says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, I would not have chosen crucifixion as my means of death or faked death if I was going to fake the resurrection. And yet Jesus went through it anyways. Why? So that all of our sins could be paid for past, present, and future. Now, if you're wondering, well, why did Jesus have to go through that? Well, the Old Testament and then the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Someone's blood has to be shed. However, the shedding of your blood and the shedding of mine will never pay for all of our sin, past, present, and future. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And that's where Jesus comes in. And that's where the good news comes in. Now, I know some of y'all come from religious backgrounds where you've been taught, hey, you know what? As long as my good outweighs my bad, you know, on that cosmic scale of justice, then God is obligated to let me into heaven. We got two issues with that. Number one, if you know me and I got to know you, I think we would discover real quick that neither of us have good deeds that outweigh our bad. My bad far outweighs my good. And I've had people object, but wait a minute, I'm a good person. Like, I give to charity. Well, here's what's interesting, just that statement alone. When you ask people why they give to things like charity, do you know what the number one answer is that you get? Makes me feel good. Right off the bat, it's selfish. And that's how we're wired ever since sin has entered into the world. The second problem with that thought of if my good just outweighs my bad, God is obligated to let me into heaven, is that as I read Scripture, the Word of God itself this book that we can know, that we can trust without a doubt, because from beginning to end it is perfect, without contradiction, without error, without mistake, tells me that there's no good people in heaven. You're like, wait a minute, I thought heaven was only for good people. There's no good people in heaven, only perfect. Which, if you're listening to that, you're beginning to realize, well, then we're all doomed. We're all hosed without any hope, because nobody's perfect, right? Well, that's not completely true. There's one man who was absolutely perfect. He is the one that we worship this morning. His name is Jesus. And the good news is that the moment that I trust Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 2, according to Romans chapter 4, according to Romans chapter 5, according to Romans chapter 8, according to the book of Revelation, according to the book of 1 Thessalonians, we are now looked at as perfect in the eyes of the Father because he cancels the record of debt that we had because of our sin. And he accredits to our account his righteousness. And he takes upon himself our unrighteousness. However, none of that matters if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus just went to a cross and he didn't rise from the dead, we are still without hope. A guy named John Locke 
great theologian and teacher said, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it, as well as everything else that we do in this life. The Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, get out of here, pack it up, go party it up, do everything you can to make yourself happy till you hit the grave because that's it, that's the end. However, Jesus, he is risen. You're allowed to respond to that this morning. He is risen. He absolutely rose from the dead. And again, if I was making that up, I'm not going to get flogged and crucified. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 34, give us our second piece of evidence. The second thing I would not have done if I was staging the resurrection. John 19, verse 31 says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now let me stop there for just a moment. That is a fulfillment of prophecy that was prophesied about a thousand years before Jesus came that not one of his bones would be broken. That's just one of 351 extremely specific prophecies about the Lord Jesus. Does that further point to the fact that there is something very different about Jesus than anybody else that's ever lived? This is much of what led me to Christ at the ripe old age of 21 when I was trying so hard to refute scripture and refute the person of Jesus. Well, then it goes on in verse 34 to say, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water. The second thing I would not have done if I had faked the resurrection was I would not have professional executioners pierce my heart, confirming to the masses that I was dead. See, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he would have been about four feet above where those Roman executioners were. And they would have taken this long spear and they'd shove it up underneath his rib cage, And they would pierce what's called the pericardial sac that surrounds the heart. Upon death, what happens is that the red blood cells separate from the water that's in the bloodstream. And when they pierce that pericardial sac, you would see what looks like two streams flowing. One would look like blood, one would look like water. They knew without a doubt that Jesus was dead. Here's why I bring this up. There have been alternate theories to Jesus rising from the dead. Like maybe he wasn't actually dead. One of the theories that was made up, we'll say, a few decades ago was one called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus, after going through the whipping of a cat of nine tails 39 times, having a crown of thorns placed upon his head, having blunt nails driven through his wrists and his feet. Maybe he wasn't actually dead when they laid him in that cold, damp tomb. It just woke him up. Then somehow he moved a 4,000-pound stone by himself, snuck past 16 trained Roman soldiers, then showed up in Jerusalem and convinced everybody that he was good as new. Okay, I sound a little bit facetious, but that's a theory that's been come up with just so people can avoid the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he did, do you know what we owe to him? Everything. Well, then there's the stolen body theory. Maybe the disciples stole the body so that it would look like Jesus rose from the dead. That sounds like a plausible theory, doesn't it? Except for the fact that on the day of Jesus' death, none of the disciples were around. John was off in the distance, but the rest were all hiding up in a room somewhere. 
because they were afraid of what might happen to them. Now, if you know anything about the Romans, when they place somebody in a tomb and then they put a seal upon it, the person that breaks that seal is going to die the exact same death as the person that was in the tomb. I don't think the disciples would have been able to either fight off or sneak past 16 trained Roman soldiers again, move a 4,000-pound stone by themselves, and the fact that they even would have done it at all is kind of ludicrous because they were a little wimpy. They hadn't even trusted that Jesus was going to rise from the dead at the time. Well, then there's the hallucination theory. You know what? They just really wanted to believe it, so they saw what they wanted to believe. Let me give you a couple reasons why the hallucination theory is um, also ludicrous. If you know anything about psychology, we know that no two people ever have the exact same hallucination, let alone 500 at one time. Now, it was actually much more than 500. The scriptures just record 500 because the only ones that would have been counted would have been men over the age of 30. So there were probably a few thousand that saw Jesus rise from the dead. On top of that, a hallucination is usually something that people see when it's something that they really, really believe and or want to believe. Remember, at the time, the disciples didn't even believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And I'm going to give you one more. It's the only one that's even remotely plausible, and it's the wrong tomb theory. Maybe the women that showed up at the tomb, maybe the disciples that came to the tomb just accidentally went to the wrong tomb. First off, if they did, the Romans had a practice to where they would have just gone to the, to the right tomb. They would have exhumed the body. They would have then tied the body by its feet behind horseback. They would have drug it through town. They would have then taken that body. They would have taken a spear and put it up through the body. And then they would have left that body in the middle of town for everybody to see, confirming that this person for sure did not rise from the dead. Guess what? No body. Jesus rose from the dead. That actually leads to the third thing that I would not have done if I was staging the resurrection. It's in John 19, verses 38 through 42. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. If I had faked the resurrection, I wouldn't be buried in a tomb that's so easy to find. I would have had it be somewhere obscure, and that way if the disciples did want to steal the body and say I rose, they wouldn't know where to go look for me anyways. And yet he's placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Listen, you don't get a city after your name unless you're super important and rich. So everybody would have known right where this brand new tomb was at, but once again his body was not there. However, there's another piece to this puzzle. 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, a prophet by the name of Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. There is another one of those extremely specific prophecies written all about our Jesus. Well, we got two more to go. They're found in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. We're going to just start with the first two. But here's the fourth thing I wouldn't have done if I was faking the resurrection. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Listen, if I had faked the resurrection, I wouldn't have had women be the first eyewitnesses at the tomb. Now stick with me, your pastor's not a sexist. I gotta clear this up. My wife, she's a woman, that's, that's a good thing. My daughters, they're both girls, and we have a girl dog. All girl in my house, nothing but estrogen, love it. So I am pro-girl. At the foot of the cross, we are all equally valuable in the eyes of the Lord. Now the Lord did give us different roles, specifically on purpose as men and women. But at the foot of the cross, Jesus makes it very clear that whether you're a man or a woman, you're equally valuable in his eyes. However, in Jesus' day, those that were reigning and ruling at the time, especially the Roman authorities, did not see women that way. They were considered second-class citizens to the point where their testimony wasn't even credible in a court of law. And yet, who do the scriptures record being the first ones to show up at the tomb? It's a woman. If you're making stuff up, if you're just making stuff up about the resurrection or making stuff up in your holy book, you don't have women being the first ones to show up as the credible witnesses. And yet, what do the scriptures record? Mary and some women are the first ones to show up. Why did they record that? Because that's the way it happened. And the Bible's all about the truth. Well, there's one more. This is quite possibly my favorite of all the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 3 through 7, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Listen, gang, if I had faked the resurrection, I wouldn't take the time to fold up the face cloth before leaving. You don't try to make sure things look all neat and tidy if you're just trying to steal a body. But there is some great depth to what Jesus was saying when he had the face cloth folded up and lying by itself. Number one, I'm the God of the universe, so I got no rush. But then there's something even cooler than that. The face cloth was part of an ancient custom. In fact, the napkin that would have been over his face was part of an ancient custom. When a king or a dignitary would come into town, they would throw a great feast for the king. He would sit at the head table and everybody knew right where the king was. And when the king was done eating, he would take the napkin, he would wipe off his beard, he would wipe off his face, he would wad it up and he would throw it on the plate. And immediately the servants knew, get over there and clean up the stuff because the king is done, the master is finished, and he's leaving. However, if the king decided that he wanted to get up and he just wanted to mingle with his subjects for a little while, but he was coming back, he would take the napkin and he would fold it up into concentric squares, and then he would lay it on the plate, telling the servants and telling the subjects, I'm coming back. Hey gang, listen to this. The face cloth of Jesus is folded up in the tomb. Jesus is telling us something. Do you know what he just told us from the resurrection? I'm coming back. Is that not good news? Listen, Albuquerque, we know it. It's a little bit of a mess. 
Is that an understatement? What about New Mexico in general? What about our country? This country that has celebrated about 200 years of existence was once founded upon the word of God, was once founded by people that absolutely loved Jesus. And 200 years later, you would wonder what happened to those people. What happened to all those ideals that they laid down from the word of God? What about our world in general? People have rebelled against the creator. They have rejected the creator who stepped into his own creation and died for them and rose again. Is the world a mess? The answer is yes. However, is our king still on the throne? You better believe it. Is our king still coming back? He hasn't forgotten us. I've heard people say, well, it's been 2,000 years. What's he waiting on? Well, I'll tell you part of what he's waiting on. He's waiting for the last Gentile to come in, that last Gentile to be saved, that last Gentile to trust Jesus. Who's that last Gentile? I have no idea. Could you imagine if you got to be the one who shared the gospel with the last person to come in to fulfill God's plan and then Jesus comes back? How cool would that be? So here's a challenge. Try to be the one. You know what that means? It means you got to step out in faith, trust Jesus to use you in ways that are beyond what you could ever ask or imagine, and then go share the gospel. Let's do it. Anybody ready? Let me ask you, what's the verdict? So if you're the judge and the gavel is getting ready to be slammed, what's the verdict? Who is he? Is he just a guru? Is he just a leader? Is he just a teacher? Is he a liar or a lunatic? Or is he actually the Lord of the universe? Which one is it? When the gavel drops, what's the verdict? What's the decision? I'm going to invite you for just a moment, if you would, to let's just go before the Lord. We get weirded out by silence. I'm going to ask you to just sit for a moment before the Lord in silence and think about some of the things that we just talked about this morning and who Jesus is. And then I want to ask you a question. If you've yet to trust Christ, is there any better day than today to have a birthday? I'm going to invite our prayer team, even now as I'm speaking, our prayer team, would you just join me up front? And I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to celebrate a birthday. If you're wondering, what are you talking about this birthday stuff? The moment you trust Christ, it says that we are given eternal life or that we are born again. I want to invite you to come and pray with one of these folks up here in just a moment. After we've given some folks a chance to respond to Jesus for the very first time, I'm going to allow some of you that have trusted Jesus, but maybe you've just been in a dry spell. You know that you've trusted him. You know that you know him but you really haven't been walking with him. There's been a real lack of vibrancy in your walk with Jesus. And you'd like today to be a day that you rededicate your life to Christ. That might be a lot of you. I'm going to ask you to join us up front. And then we're going to sing a final song together, just standing. Some of you will be up here. Some of you will be in your seats. Don't worry about that. We don't do what we do for anybody. We're not asking you to come up here so that people will see you. In fact, I'm going to ask you to forget about the fact that anybody's even around you. We sing because of who Jesus is. We preach the word because of who Jesus is. We come up front and acknowledge him before others because of who Jesus is. We dedicate our lives afresh to him because of who Jesus is. So I'm going to ask you right now, would you just, with your heads bowed and eyes closed for a little while, would you just go before the Lord? I'm going to give you a chance to trust Jesus for the very first time, I want to make us aware of the fact that there is no such thing as a sinner's prayer in the Bible. There are no magic words. This is just a chance to solidify your faith commitment in Jesus. If you'd like to do just that and solidify your faith commitment in Jesus, 
right now. You can just pray this after me in the quietness of your own mind. Lord Jesus, I recognize for the first time today that you truly are God in flesh. That you are the one who left your throne in heaven to come down to earth and be tortured and mocked and crucified. Lord, not because of anything that you did wrong, but you did it because of my sin. And Lord, I confess now that I am a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask you to be my Savior. I ask you to be the Lord of my life right now. Okay, I'm going to ask you just with your heads bowed, eyes closed. If that was you, if you trusted Christ for the first time, I would ask you to just acknowledge him before men right now. Now is the time to come on down here. Maybe stand down here with one of our prayer warriors. But now is the time to do just that. So if you would make your way down here now, we would invite you down. There are many of you sitting in this room who have already trusted Jesus. But again, maybe you are saying, I want to just rededicate my life afresh. Now is the time for you to do that as well. And again, you can just pray something like this with me. Lord Jesus, I have known you for quite some time, but Lord, I ask that you would forgive me for not living fully for you. I ask that you would forgive me for living for temporal things, for trivial things. And Lord, I ask that you would spark a fire in me that I would be living for things of eternal value from this point forward and for whatever other days you give me this side of heaven. Lord Jesus, I want you to be in your rightful place and that is on the throne. Gang, I'm going to ask if that is you, would you just stand and make your way down here this morning as we get ready to pray together? Again, we are not concerned if, if you are the only person standing down here, but if you're saying, I want to live a life that is fully dedicated to the Lord this morning, go ahead and make your way down here now. For the rest of y'all, if you are ready to bring Albuquerque Jesus... If you are ready to be used by him in ways that are beyond what we could ask or imagine, if you are ready to bring the good news of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus to Albuquerque, would you just stand with us as we get ready to sing one final song together? Why don't we stand together? This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.